Our epistle lesson this morning comes from Titus chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning you have opened our lips. Open now our hearts that we may receive your word, that you may lead us in the way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1950s, one of Manhattan's high-rise office buildings had a problem. You see, the tenants in the building had begun to complain about something the long wait they endured every day as they waited for the elevator. And so, not wanting to lose tenants, the owners of the building called in structural engineers to explore possible solutions. More elevators, a faster elevator, bigger elevators, any of these would do, but the engineers quickly realized that no such options were available to them. So the owners and the staff of the building got together, frustrated, racking their brains for a solution, until one of the staff humbly threw out an out-of-the-box idea. Why don't we put floor-to-ceiling mirrors near the elevators to give the people something to look at while they wait? They did it, and complaints went almost completely away. Why? Because the problem, of course, was not the waiting. The problem was boredom. What to do while you wait in this awful line through this awful office building lobby. Now, no one, of course, has recognized and more elegantly solved this problem than our friends down at Disney. Their lines are awesome to wait in. There's so much to do, so much to see. Your anticipation builds as you wait in this hour-plus-long line for a maximum four-minute-long ride. Disney has mastered the art of waiting. And, of course, they have the brilliant FastPass system. And you see, while we live today, I think, in an Amazon-filled world that sees waiting as the enemy, I believe deep down we all know that waiting is inevitable in life, in both small things and when it comes to big things. Waiting is inevitable. I believe we all have a deep down feeling that there is something coming that is better for us that we can only wait for. C.S. Lewis put it like this, if I find my, in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And for this world, we all must wait in both good times and bad. Now, Charles Colson, not our senior pastor, but the other one, wrote a well-known book called How Now Shall We Live? And the question before us this morning 
is how now shall we wait? The psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 25, explores waiting in difficult times. And we've been exploring this theme for the past several weeks through Advent and now Christmas season. You see, in times of stress, anxiety, and trouble, waiting is forced upon us more strongly. David is in that place when he wrote Psalm 25. There are external and internal troubles. There are enemies outside of him seeking to do him harm. And there is his own sin. The past haunts him. The present is a nightmare. And the future is murky. So, how does he wait? Because that is his resolve in Psalm 25. And that's the question we have this morning. How shall we wait? Three points. Two things to do and one way to do them. So the first thing we see in Psalm 25 is that waiting means fleeing to God for refuge. If you look at verse 3 of this psalm, we read this promise. David uh, declares this promise. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. And then at the end of the psalm, he does something interesting. He claims this promise, but he puts it differently. He says, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I take refuge in you. Now, you might have expected him to say, let me not be put to shame, for I have waited for you. But he puts it differently. And what he is teaching us is that waiting means taking refuge in God. It means fleeing to him for refuge This is also in the psalm called putting our trust in God and lifting up our soul to him. And friends, it is that action of trust, that step of lifting our souls to God that this psalm tells us is our only sure defense in life's troubles, in life's anxiety. That's why when Paul describes the armor of God in Ephesians 6, He calls faith the shield. It's that by which we may extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith gets us to the refuge, and the refuge keeps us secure. That's the first thing we do in waiting. We flee to God for refuge. But what practically does this look like, you might be wondering. I think taking God in refuge, we see here, does not merely mean sending up a cry for help. It sometimes does mean that. But for David here, it means coming before God with all of his emotional needs, his anxieties, his stress, his fear, and bringing it to God and focusing his attention on the things of God, focusing his attention. This psalm actually is what's known as an acrostic poem. That means that every verse of the psalm begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So David, in a time of trouble, has taken the time to sit down and work out this very difficult poetic uh, prayer, going letter by letter through the alphabet, reflecting on who God is and what God requires of him in his trouble. So certainly taking refuge in God means having a robust life of devotion. It might often mean retreating. It might mean turning off the distractions in your life to go to God. That is lifting up your soul. 
but it also means in day-to-day life, setting your mind on the things of God, as Paul also told us. It is possible, even day in and day out, in life's stresses, emotions, anxieties, to set your mind on things above where Christ is, even as you go through daily life. And you know, the reality is that in moments of distress, everyone does take refuge anyway. If you're not aware of it, you are taking refuge somewhere, and if you do not make God your refuge, something else will be your refuge. Everyone you know has put their trust in something as a shield, as a refuge, as the thing to bring them out of or through their difficulties. For some of us, I mean, it could be anything. For some of us, it's our work, our families, relationships. For some, the refuge is a lot more destructive than that, more addictive, more obvious. But distress and trouble brings out our refuges into the light. And so we all must examine ourselves this morning. Are we fleeing to him for refuge? Are you taking refuge in him? And this idea of God as a refuge is all over the place in Scripture, but for many of us, it's foreign. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I've never quite thought of God as my refuge. For many of us, uh, I think we think of God as someone who needs to almost be kept at an arm's length, to be appeased, maybe so that he'll not send bad things our way, but not as one who, when bad things come, that we throw all of ourselves upon him for comfort, for security, for his embrace. And if that idea of God as refuge is foreign to you this morning, I implore you to keep listening because as we keep moving, I want to explore how God can become your refuge, your safe and renewing place. So flee to him for refuge. That is the first shape that waiting takes. The second thing that we see in this psalm is that in our waiting, as we wait, we seek God's instruction. Now, waiting, obviously, as we're seeing, is, is actually not something that we do passively. We think of waiting in that way most of the time. But here we see that in David's waiting, he actively seeks something from God. In verses 4 and 5, it's most clear. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. You see, those who flee to God for refuge are not content with merely knowing about God or receiving comfort from him. Those who flee to God and make him their refuge desire to be like him, to learn from him, for him to be their teacher. That is the prayer. Be my teacher. And this kind of learning is not merely know that. It's not know about. It is know how. This is the type of knowledge that parents have for their children. It's the type of knowledge that a master has for their craft, that maybe Andy Ziff has of his guitar. This type of knowledge is deep down. It's rooted in the heart. That's what David's after. He wants God's spirit to lead him to doing and thinking in godly ways. This is not just moral, upright living. It is also having his mind and his attitude tuned to the things of God. 
And why does he do this? You know, as I reflected on this psalm, particularly on verse 5, it was odd to me at first that when David makes this prayer for God to teach him, his reason for asking for God's instruction is this. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. The reason that David seeks God's instruction is because God is the one who in the end will deliver him. What's the logic behind that? I want you to teach me because you're the God who saves me and who will save me in the end. What David is getting at here is something very interesting. I think what he's getting at is that as those who wait for God's salvation in the future, we can in the present experience something of what's, what that is like when we learn to walk in his ways. I know many of us this morning can testify to that in our lives, to God's help in getting over some anger issue or some particularly thorny struggle in your life, some sin issue, and that in the struggle, in learning to walk in God's ways and to love what he loves, you actually find greater freedom and joy. You see, friends, as we learn to walk in God's ways, we get foretastes of the coming glory, of that which we wait for. When we learn to walk in God's ways, we experience the future in the present. We experience the kingdom of God in this world. And so the prayer of those who take refuge in God, who wait for him, is teach me, Lord. Lead me in your truth. Be my teacher. Be my guide. But of course, if we're honest, many times we find this task burdensome and difficult to lift our souls to God when we are beaten down. Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this passage, put it like this. Very often the soul cannot rise. She has lost her wings and is heavy and earthbound, more like a burrowing mole than a soaring eagle. Why is that? I think it's because we don't do these things in the way that we are supposed to. And that brings us to our third point. In our waiting, in our fleeing to God for refuge and seeking his instruction, we must do these things in humble confidence. Humble confidence. One of the most striking features of Psalm 25 is how David turns several times from these confident assertions of trusting in God. I lift up my soul to you. Good and upright are you, Lord. You lead sinners in the way. He turns from that confidence to humble acknowledgement of his sin and guilt, which he says in verse 11 is great. How can a man so aware of his sin come before God with such confidence? How can he say in the same breath, all the ways of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant? And then say, forgive my sin for it is great. And how can we who know that much of our trouble is self-inflicted? who feel in so many ways that we even deserve some of our troubles. How can we still find God our refuge? How can sinners make a holy God their refuge? The way David does it and the way that we too can do it is in knowing that we belong to him, that we are in his family. 
Three times in this psalm, David makes reference to the steadfast love of God. That is somewhat of a technical term in the Old Testament, steadfast love is. Another way of putting it would be covenant love. Every time this word, this idea of God's love, his steadfast love appears in the Old Testament, it has reference to God's establishing this special relationship with his people. It is the love in which God is tirelessly committed to broken people as his agents of restoration in the world. David knew that God called Abraham out of his pagan lifestyle. He knew that he sent Moses to redeem Israel. He knew that God had established an everlasting covenant with him and with his household. And that is what David relies on for confidence in the midst of his sinfulness, in the midst of his weakness and brokenness. That this is who God is. He says, remember your steadfast love, O Lord, for it is from of old. This is who you have always been and it is who you will be. You have promised to be this, and it is who you are. And friends, as those who know Jesus, we know that this is who God is in his very nature. He is the Father who eternally loves his Son and who adopts us as his children and shares with us that same love. We come to God in all of our brokenness, in all of our weakness, in every one of life's stresses, even when we know and feel that they may be self-inflicted with the confession, the trust that God has made us his and that he is ours, that we are his children. Many of us have not been taught to think of God as this near and this loving. In the wake of the enlightenment, we've been taught that God is like a clockmaker who has wound up the world and set it spinning, set its gears turning on their own with no real personal or intimate involvement at all. And we have to make our own way in the world to figure it out for ourselves. Or for some of us, this, this problem is not so much a, a cultural, uh, historical problem. It's a problem of our own past. We've never experienced nearness and that kind of love in our own lives, in our own relationships, and so we don't expect it of God. We don't know how to flee to him for refuge because we've never done it anywhere else. But this is the great hope of the gospel, that we can wait on God because he has promised to deliver us. We can have humble confidence in the midst of our weakness. And you know that makes all the difference in how we live, in how we wait. To have humility without confidence is, of course, nothing but despair. And to have confidence without humility is pride and arrogance. It is only in Jesus that we can have humility with confidence. At the root of the word humility is, or connected to it, is, is in fact the idea of humiliation. And so in a sense, to have humility is to acknowledge that there are aspects of yourself that are humiliating. And most people can't do that. Most of us struggle to live in that tension. But the gospel is 
that God the Son has come to take our humiliation. And friends, the one who was born among cattle died stripped bare on a cross, humiliated because of our sin so that we could have confidence to come before God. Friends, Advent and Christmas is a season of waiting, and we still wait for the return of our Lord in good times and bad, in good times knowing that they will end, in bad times, of course. We all reach points at which there's nothing we can do but wait. But in Jesus, we can wait in confidence that he is coming. He will deliver us. He will return. And so that's our prayer this morning. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Redeem us from all our trouble. Let's pray. Father, you are good and upright. You are faithful. You are covenant-keeping. Help us to rely day in and day out in all our troubles and anxiety and stress on your steadfast love. We flee to you for refuge and nowhere else. And God, help us to praise you in the midst of it all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.